Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. With me today we have Dr. Ruduan Bishari. He is an ordinary professor of ecoetology at the Université de Neuchâtel at Switzerland. His research is focused on cooperation within and between species, making use of game theoretic models. He also studies links between game theoretic approaches, animal cognition, and behavioral endocrinology. Dr. Bisheri, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for your interest. <laughs> Great. So, uh, the first question I would like to ask you is, what does a game theoretic approach to animal behavior offers us in terms of tools to better understand animal social behavior? So if you are an evolutionary biologist, you want to have a theoretical framework, you want to predict how natural selection acts on the behavior of individuals, and game theory is one tool to yeah, formalize uh, social interactions among animals and make predictions and test them. Mm -hmm. And uh, what kinds of models do you use in game theory? Well, the most famous one in the context of cooperation is the so-called prisoner's dilemma, where you have a very simple game with two players who have both the option to either cooperate or to defect. And then depending on the combination of actions, you get payoffs for each individual. And the payoffs are constructed such that mutual cooperation is obviously better than mutual defection. But in any single round, it is better to defect no matter what the partner is doing. So there's a strong temptation to defect on your partner. And typically the only solution is that you have repeated interactions with the same partner and then through repeated interactions you get to conditional cooperative strategies that you cooperate as long as your partner cooperates. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I know that you focus a lot of your research on studying uh, cleaning behavior in fish. Could you talk a little bit about that and how do you apply game theoretic approaches to studying that specific kind of behavior in those species? So in marine cleaning mutualism, there's a, a small fish, uh, also some shrimps, but we focus on fish that removes ectoparasites from other reef fish. And uh, there's a conflict of interest in the species I study. It's a little cleaner wrasse. The Latin name is Labroides dimigatus because they don't really like to eat ectoparasites. They like to eat the mucus, the protective layer on fish, the slimy bits. And so the client reef fish that come to cleaners at their cleaning station, they want ectoparasites removed. The cleaner wants to eat mucus, so there's a conflict of interest. And so clients have to make cleaners feed against their preference, otherwise the cleaners would do a, a very lousy service. And so one can think now about how do clients achieve this. And so the, in contrast to the prisoner's dilemma game, what we have here is an asymmetric situation. The cleaner fish can cooperate or defect. And most client species, if you're not a predator, you don't have the option to cheat in return. So it's, it's better to think about a service provider and a client rather than about a symmetric game. And now how they solve it, it really depends on the strategic ac uh, options of the client. So we distinguish between predators 
and non-predators on the one hand, because the predator has a very interesting control mechanism. If the cleaner fish eats mucus rather than ectoparasites, it's not a cleaner, it's potential food. And so cleaners rather prefer to be very cooperative to a predatory client. But that's less than 5% of clients are actually predators of small fish. And the other 95% or so, they lack this strategic option. And there we make the distinction between resident client species. They have very small territories or home ranges. So they have only one cleaning station within their home range. That's like the countryside. You have one hairdresser. You have to live with this one hairdresser. So if the service is good, everything is fine, obviously. But if the service is lousy and the hairdresser starts biting, then you have to educate it for the next interaction. And so the resident clients, they chase cleaners when they cheat them. And the cleaners remembers, and the next time the service will be particularly good. And then there are other types of non-predatory clients with large home ranges, large uh, territories. And so there are several cleaning stations within their home range. And that's big city life. You have several hairdressers. And so you play a market game. If the service is good, you come back for your next inspection. If the service is lousy, you simply switch to a different cleaner for your next inspection. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And I would like to ask you for animal species in general, but if you would like to leave it only for to talk about the fish, you can do it as well. But I would like to ask you if there is any particular basic set of cognitive tools that animals have to have in order to keep track of their interactions with other individuals, other individuals being other animals of the same species or, or even of other species when they are trying to perform these cooperative behaviors. So I don't think in the end you need uh, really cognition to be involved because you have mutualistic interactions between plants and uh, bacteria or plants and mycorrhizae fungi. So there's no brain on either side and there's still uh, some strains of bacteria. It's about fixing nitrogen and the plant gives uh, nutrition in return, so carbohydrates. And there are some bacteria lines that don't really fix nitrogen and then the plant is good enough to realize that in some parts of the the roots there's not enough production and so the plant doesn't invest in in root growth in these areas where there's little nitrogen fixation and invests more in root growth where there's more nitrogen fixation so without any brain you still get cooperation despite some temptation to cheat and it means that, uh, in principle, you can do without. It's clear the more cognition you put in, the more sophisticated your, your strategies can be and maybe the, the games that you are playing. Mm -hmm. And uh, could you explain to people who don't know what is an evolutionary stable strategy and how does a certain particular kind of behavior or interaction between two different individuals or more could turn into an evolutionarily stable strategy. So the idea of evolutionary stable strategy is that if all individuals in the population play this particular strategy, there's no alternative strategy that could have a higher payoff or even the same payoff as this uh, population strategy and therefore 
cannot invade. That means that the population has reached a stable endpoint in evolution where everybody plays a strategy that makes sense. And in the in the context of a prisoner's dilemma, to come back to this uh, standard game, one stable solution would always be that everybody defects. That's very stable. As soon as everybody defects, there's no mutant who could start any conditional cooperative strategy and uh, have a higher payoff or the same payoff as the the, the wild type. <clears throat> and therefore, that's that's one stable endpoint. And that's what has bothered theoreticians for, for a long time, because <clears throat> if you assume that not cooperating is kind of the ancestral state, then you have to try to understand how could cooperation ever start. And uh, <clears throat> there are different ways to, to deal with this, that it started in a different game, that it was based on kin selection and helping among relatives and stuff. But... Uh, <clears throat> But let's assume that uh, there's some cooperation in the population, then you might also have kind of conditional cooperative strategies that might solve the prisoner's dilemma in in repeated interaction. And yeah, let's say the most famous one I would say is generous tit for tat, that as long as your partner cooperates, you cooperate with pretty much 100% probability. And if your partner defects, then you cooperate with just say 30% probability and like this you get the, the benefits of cooperation and you avoid being exploited too much and this seems to to work. But I should add that uh, Prisoner's Dilemma is a highly artificial construct and uh, my colleagues have struggled for a long time to find any evidence for tit-for-tat-like strategies in a Prisoner's Dilemma. Mm -hmm. that, that's interesting because another question that I would like to ask you is that uh, in order for us to create uh, good or uh, mod, uh, game theoretic models that are good enough in order uh, to, uh, to make conclusions or good conclusions about uh, how cooperative behavior develops among individuals of a particular species or even between species as, as happens in mutualism, we really need to to have uh, the knowledge about uh, how those individuals how their social cognition operates because we would like we would want to develop models that have uh, good uh, good inputs in terms of information in order to give good uh, good conclusions right because if we set if we set a game theoretical model that is not in according to to how animals behave and how they can process social cognition, then it can lead us astray, right? So you you hit the key point as far as my thinking goes these days, and this is that we have to put very explicitly mechanisms into our models because. Evolutionary game theory, by definition, is about genetic strategies. And uh, animals don't really have genetic strategies. They have genes that interact with the environment during ontogeny to produce a brain. And then it's the brain that interacts with the environment that gathers and stores information and retrieves information. And so you get to learn decision rules. And so you, you have to think within the lifetime of individuals to understand decision making. The genes they are there for, for developing 
brains and the genes they can influence uh, hormone release kind of whether oxytocin for example makes you more trustful when you interact with friends or family members and this facilitates maybe helping behavior cooperative behavior but you have to think about mechanisms and how they play a role within the lifetime of individuals and then you solve a lot of problems that evolutionary game theory has struggled with like uh, the idea that if everybody is cooperative in a population of cooperators you might lose the vigilance and then a single mutant that's cheating might take over in the population and these problems don't exist if the if individuals learn how to behave because then you're more exploratory you will try a little bit of defection and then you get a negative response and if you're cooperating get a positive response and that's how you adjust your strategies over lifetime rather than genetically and I think with, with such an approach uh, we will get much further but it's also much more difficult to to put mechanisms into into game theory. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying, just for me to understand it a bit better, is that in order for us to properly understand uh, animal social behavior, we have to take into account the ecological conditions it is expressed in and also the life history features of each species that is. Uh, how they develop and the several phases or stages of development they have to go through uh, from birth to adulthood, let's say. Yeah, you have to put experience, you have to put uh, the, the cognitive capacities, you have to put the physiological processes, the hormones in the brain, because we also realize for humans nowadays that emotions are really important. I mean, they, they mix obviously in one way or another with with memory, but but not as rational as people assumed uh, before. Homo economicus, that we are, that we think through problems and then come up with the best idea. It seems like our gut feeling summarizes our past experience in very efficient ways and uh, makes us behave most of the time quite appropriately, whether it's now being more cooperative or less cooperative. And only if we put these mechanisms in, we can also understand the differences between species because if you have a purely genetic uh, model that says okay one strategy is tit for tat one strategy is always cooperate one strategy is always defect and you have just one allele that is now different for each uh, strategy you cannot understand why we find these differences between species in in their ability to cooperate i mean then it would be very easy for any species no matter how big the brain no matter what physiology to to develop high levels of cooperation if it pays and <clears throat> it doesn't seem to happen this way so to understand variation between individuals of the same species to understand variation yeah. between species in levels of cooperation we need to understand mechanisms mm -hmm, exactly and it's interesting that you refer to at one point there uh, to endocrinology because even the way uh, our hormones work uh, and how they influence our behavior also depends on the environmental conditions we're in, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, there are plenty of studies that traumatic events early on in life that they can influence how trustful you are later on. And uh, I mean, take oxytocin as the, the standard uh, 
hormone that has been studied a lot in humans, uh, building trust, building in-group uh, helping. It's clear that the evolutionary roots of oxytocin that's bonding between mother and infant, and you find this working yeah, in any mammal and also in, in other species apparently. So it is there and now you can co-opt it to do even more that you say it's not just between mother and infant, but it can also be with your long-term partner, it can be with friends, or it might even influence uh, kind of in-group, out-group uh, distinctions. So basically you, you just adjust uh, probably some receptors in the brain that allow you to use the very same hormone in more than one situation and that enables you to be more cooperative in situations where other species simply cannot do because the tiger is always solitary so there's no selection whatsoever for a tiger mother to be helpful other than for her own offspring. Mm -hmm. And in what ways do the dynamics change when we go from one-to-one -one interactions between individuals to let's say public good games where several individuals interact and have to make decisions at the same time? So the larger the group size, the, the more difficult it gets to be cooperative, to get to stable cooperation. That's really no matter which game you are playing and whether it's direct reciprocity or indirect or generalized or whatever type of investment where cooperation helping is really an investment, the larger the group size, the more you run into problems. So, and the reason is that the larger the group size, you cannot direct actually your your responses to particular individuals. So if if we are already if we are three, I cooperate, you cooperate, and the third one defects. What do I do now? If I defect, it's what the defector deserves, but you don't. You cooperated, so I cannot uh, be specific about my responses because it's always about creating public goods, and then you have to put. Uh, second layers on top of it where you say like yeah we need some ways to to punish or some ways that this gives reputation which is important in other contexts but immediately it gets much more complicated if you increase group size also because of the the cognitive demands that you really track uh, all group members and what have they done in the past it becomes much more difficult much more demanding to to really know who are the best cooperators, who are the, the greatest bastards in the group. And that makes group cooperation really, really difficult. And uh, one solution is uh, kin selection linked to uh, yeah, reproductive skew, so that you have only a queen, like in hymenopteras and social insects, in bees and ants, that you have a queen that uh, monopolizes reproduction and kin structure, so that works. And then I think humans did really well because we have institutions and institutions solve a lot of this uh, public monitoring. Mm -hmm. Okay, and do you think that there's any evidence for group selection at the genetic level? Because we have kin selection and reciprocal altruism and those two seem to be very well established from an evolutionary and genetic perspective. But what about group selection? So I belong to the many evolutionary biologists who think that uh, inclusive fitness theory can be translated into group selection. There's no, 
real difference between the two. So please realize that inclusive fitness theory is altruism plus direct benefits and group selection also. I mean, in the end, the individual is the, the acting unit. Whatever it does must on average increase its inclusive fitness. Otherwise, uh, it just doesn't work. It is clear that there are species where between group competition is very important so that you have kind of stakeholders. We are in the same group. Think about a group of monkeys in, in a rainforest. They defend the territory together against neighboring group. And it's clear if, if they lose a conflict against the neighboring group, the territory will be smaller, there will be less food, so everybody suffers from them. So between group competition is clearly out there. I would call it competition rather than selection. But it's clear if you have between group competition, there's selection on the individual to be nicer to other group members and nastier to, to non-group members. So in this sense, uh, I don't think there's uh, really a, a conflict. It is just that if you are, again, interested in mechanisms, then I think the cultural group selection idea is interesting because it's clear that the, the mechanism that drives uh, differences between groups is uh, social learning and culture rather than difference in genetics. If you transfer a baby from one group to the other, it will adopt the phenotype of the group it's raised in. So if you had been raised in China, you would speak perfect Chinese, obviously, rather than Portuguese. And, and that's obviously interesting from a mechanistic point of view. There's still selection on the individual to, yeah, those that maximize inclusive fitness spread most, uh, more genes than, than others. That's, uh, I mean, in some ways, the, it's a quite obvious and in itself abstract, boring fact, and you have to put ecology around it and try to understand under which conditions uh, helping increases the inclusive fitness of individuals and there between group competition can be very important. Mm -hmm. But do you think that particularly in humans group selection would act more at the cultural level or also at the genetic level? Well, I think it's a very open question. You could certainly argue that over the last 10,000 years uh, many more things changed in our culture than in our genes. I mean, changes there so fast in in our culture and the way we interact or the scale in which we interact that it's quite difficult to argue that uh, our genes are responsible for this or changes in, in gene frequencies. <clears throat> At the same time, as an evolutionary biologist, I have no idea whether what we see nowadays, how much of the, the social behavior we see is really adaptive or whether we do a lot of uh, wrong things because we cannot track the the changes and the complexity. At the same time, one could argue, yeah, we have a brain, that's why we evolved the brain to to assess and make decisions based on, on information rather than based on genetic strategies. But I think it's one of the really big open questions and many people think about it uh, and uh, let's see how, how far we get. But uh, I wouldn't lean very far out of the window and claim I knew what's going on with humans these days. Okay, Dr. Bushari, so just perhaps one last question. Is there any set of established criteria that another species has to fulfill in order for us when we are studying 
its social behavior to be able to, proper, to properly extrapolate from that species to humans? Um, I don't think that uh, <clears throat> the comparative approach uh, works this way. I think we can do two different things. One is we try to <clears throat> pinpoint mechanisms of decision-making in humans and in other species <clears throat> and look how similar they are and how similar our social behavior is. And the other thing is that we can look at, and there probably you, you would predict that the closer we are phylogenetically, the, the more similar we might be, like we are more similar to chimpanzees and bonobos maybe than, than to a cleaner fish. Or you can turn it around and you can say, well, what is the, what are the ecological pressures on individuals of a, of a certain species? And then you say, like, well, if you have similar problems to solve, you will solve them, even though the mechanisms might be very different from genetic strategy to just conditioning, simple associative learning to theory of mind in humans and empathy and stuff. And there you, you can obviously compare much broader than you, you just compare all the species that have similar problems. And there's already E.O. Wilson argued uh, yeah, more than 40 years ago, maybe we should compare humans to wild dogs or social carnivores rather than to, to chimpanzees. Because living on the plains and hunting cooperatively to, to catch and defend prey and being cooperative breeder that that these might be more similar to us than, than a chimpanzee in a rainforest. Or one could argue that uh, cleaner fish, they live in a really good uh, free market and that's why they have all these interesting strategies on both sides with punishment, with reputation, with partner switching, that this is really ecology driven rather than yeah, cognition driven. And so I think both approaches, the, the cognitive and the ecological one, they are valid and we need to learn more with a large comparison between species to to get to a more detailed picture with time. Mm -hmm. Okay, great, Dr. Buscheri. So just before we finish this year, would you like perhaps to share with people where they can follow your work online? And I don't know if you're active on social media or not. So anything you would like to share? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm very old fashioned. So I have... Uh, no Facebook, no Twitter. Um, the easiest is I have uh, a profile on Google Scholar and that's uh, bringing out, uh, obviously updating my publications. I have one advantage, if you type in my name in Google, there are no other red worm shari, so you would find any secondary reports about my research is quite easy to find if you type my name into Google. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. I will leave all of that in the description box of this video. And Dr. Buscheri, again, thank you a lot for taking a bit of your time to being here with us today. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Hi, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel last February and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. 
otherwise and if you like what I'm doing please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peralga Larson and Logorero. Thank you very much for all.